The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to this program, everyone. Last night we had a bit of a technical glitch and we had to run a best of program. It was a really good one, actually. I, I enjoyed uh, revisiting that conversation. But tonight we are not doing that. Tonight we've actually got... Nathaniel Gillis joining us. He's a demonologist. He's going to be talking about his research of the devil, demons, unclean spirits, with a twist, actually. He believes there could be a connection uh, to the implants that are found in people who have been abducted by aliens with these evil entities. So we'll see what he has to say about that. Again, Nathaniel Gillis will join us in just a little bit on the program. Tomorrow night, we've got Caroline Corey coming on the show to talk about her film, Superhuman. Looking forward to that. This film has received a lot of great reviews and generated a lot of great discussion. That'll be tomorrow night's chat here on Beyond Reality. I uh, hope you all had a great 4th of July weekend and all, everybody counted their fingers and toes. Hope there were no accidents as it seems that uh, uh, fireworks are more and more available. At least, at least for us in New York, we in New York have not had legal fireworks up until this year, or maybe last year. I think it's this year is the first year. So that was a new thing for a lot of people around here. Most seem to be able to handle it responsibly, thankfully, and I hope everybody had a great time, was able to spend uh, good quality time with friends and family, despite all the other challenges we're facing around the globe and around the nation. The other thing um, that uh, we need to be careful of is this resurging COVID-19 Virus. Although the good news in all of this is that uh, the death rate seems to be plummeting. Not sure. I mean, some are speculating it's because that uh, now younger people are, are becoming infected, and those people obviously have a much lower risk. Anyway, just be careful. It was really hot over the weekend, too. I and mean, we've had some pretty good weather, at least here in the Northeast. It's been quite nice uh, for folks who like enjoying uh, enjoying the outdoors. I uh, tend to be in an air-conditioned room as much as possible. I know it's kind of sad, but that's just what I like. I don't know. I don't like to sweat so much anymore. Um, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. Go to YouTube and look for JV Johnson and subscribe to that channel. Also find us on Twitch. The Twitch channel will ultimately be our weekend-only channel. Right now we're doing simulcasting, but uh, at some point, very soon, we will switch to Twitch only on weekends. Our regular uh, interview program during the week will be here on on uh, YouTube as uh, as it has been. So that's the plan. If you uh, subscribe and follow both, then you'll be in the know all of the time. And thank you for all to all of us those who joined us on Friday night as we entered. The holiday weekend, we had a great little program of booze, brews, and bros with a bunch of good brews and a bunch of good bros. Um, we had a good time. That's always fun. And that's what we do at the end of the week to kind of kick off the weekend. Sometimes we do it on a Saturday. Usually it's a Friday night. Sometimes it's both, actually. Let's see. I don't have anything else that I need to let you know about. So we'll go to break. We'll get our guest, Nathaniel Gillis, on the line. We'll talk about demonology tonight. That's our conversation on Beyond Reality. Don't go away. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Always love talking about this topic because it's so very, very interesting, mysterious. There's a lot of intrigue, a lot of questions that we look for answers to. We don't always get them. We get a few, and hopefully we'll get some more tonight. Our guest tonight, Nathaniel Gillis, is a religious demonologist. He's also an author. And after living in a haunted house, Nathaniel spent 20 years researching what it was that he encountered in that house. He's the founder of pre, uh, preternatural uh, epiphenomenal philosophy. We're going to have to ask him what that's about. Uh, he's also sought to redefine the nature of haunting phenomena, ghosts, and high strangeness. He's often quoted for his concept of the demonic by saying the reason they are playing by different rules is because they are playing a different game. Nathan, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you, sir. It's good to be with you. So I stumbled from through uh, pre-preternatural uh, uh, epiphenomenal philosophy. What are we talking about here? Uh, basically trying to assess what it is we're dealing with in regards to hauntology, possessions, and parapsychology. Um, ep- epiphenomenon is different than phenomenon in that phenomenon is an act it's something that happens. Epiphenomenon is something that happens because something else happened first. And uh, one of the things that really led me into this research, obviously after growing up in a haunted house, but uh, in addition to that, I just I really felt like a lot of times we are misinterpreting much of what we're experiencing. I liken it to someone stepping into a pool of water and uh, their presence displacing it, creating a wake in the water. And uh, someone else pointing at the waves and saying, look, that's a person. (laughs) It's not the person. It's not even the presence. It's a secondary consequence of that entity, of that individual who is present. But, you know, we could be measuring some of the wrong things. Uh, So when I approach hauntology as a discipline, even demonology as a discipline, I think that more often or not, more often than not, rather, we are experiencing a language that is uh, being communicated to us, even if they don't intend to. There's much to learn and much more to learn if we can understand the value system they're operating off of. So a lot of what you're saying then, it's, 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 a, lack of our, uh, it's a lack of our interpretation. We're looking at, the, at, at things through the wrong window, maybe. We're just interpreting them the wrong way in some cases. Correct, and that's due to a great deal Uh, because of religious dogma, and I say that with all due respect. I grew up in a Christian tradition, Uh, but, you know, that's where I got my demonology from, and so when I first began to study hauntings and possession cases, my my entire worldview was looking through that lens, and so that's what really influenced me, and that's what limited me in many ways. But one of my chapters of my book that I'm writing right now, it's, it's called What I Experienced When I Experienced Me. And I go through the, the understanding that uh, if we are to approach a lot of this phenomenon through a religious lens, uh, it will affect, it'll affect everything that we're perceiving, specifically the data sample. Uh, like, like when I got into demonology, I, I thought everything was horns and hooves. Right. You know, and it just, my demonology fell apart just because of the data sample. And I think that's, 
that's why it's so germane to understand what preternatural epiphenomenal philosophy can add. Tell us about the haunted house that you grew up in. Well, I was about eight or nine years old. It was in Dayton, Ohio. And my very first apparition I saw was actually during the open house, if you can believe it. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, my dad. Wait, when you, me, say, when you say the open house, you were there to buy the house or you were correct. selling? Oh, wow. My very, yes, my very first time laying eyes on the house. Uh, my dad had told me, he said, listen, son, he said, we're going to go walk around and talk to the, the realtor. He said, but this is going to be your room, so walk around, check it out, look at it, look at it and kind of determine where you're going to place your bed and your video game system because, you know, I was a big gamer back in the day. <laughs> so, you know, that's what I did. And for some reason, I, I just it, it really stunk. It was a rancid stench. And it wasn't just like a stench. It was more so that I was smelling a presence there. And now that I'm older, I can understand it more. Um, but I was just kind of, you know, open up, opening the drawers, not really the drawers, but the closets and stuff. And we had like two or three closets in there, uh, little small ones. But, uh, you know, looking through just different areas of the room, I, I, just, I was attracted to the bed. And I didn't know why. I just kind of looked at the bed, and I knelt down, pulled that little blanket up, and I stared right into the face of a little girl. Ooh. She, yeah, she was uh, black-headed, beautiful, beautiful, pale little girl. She was in a white linen dress that was very antiquated, and she was shoved up on, on the other side of the wall as if she was terrified of me. And uh, so, you know, I'm a kid. I didn't, I honestly thought that she had lived in the house and maybe her parents forgot about her. I didn't know what to think. Uh, so later that night on the way home, I had asked my parents, I said, hey, listen, you know, I encountered a little girl in there. And I said, I, either she lives there or she might go, you know, belong. I didn't know where to put her. I just thought she lived there. And they said, no, uh, it was actually a house that was owned by a uh, elderly couple who had passed away. Oh, wow. And so that was my very first experience, and from that point on, it grew darker and more sinister as the days went by. Well, on that in that very first day, did anybody else notice the odor that you noticed? No, sir. Do you think, in retrospect, now that you have had a special sensitivity to it, or was it targeting you to notice? I think it was a little bit of both. I, I do have certain. I don't want to call them giftings, empathic notions. How about that? You know, and, and that they've they've proven valuable to be in my own calling in ministry uh, in this field. Uh, but I, I do believe that at that young age, some of these entities, at least the serial killer kind uh, that I've encountered, they will victimize those who, you know, are going to grow into destinies that, that will disturb them. And so they would rather take them out now than have to deal with them then, if that makes sense. And so as you obviously moved into the house, you bought the house, moved into it, mm -hmm. and you say that the experience has turned darker and more sinister. Was oh, yeah. the the entity that was uh, you encountered as uh, in the form of a little girl, mm -hmm. was that the source of the darker experience as time went on, or was that was she a victim of this whole thing? I, I would say she was a victim. She was petrified of me. And I, and I say that because I remember the very first night we uh, had actually moved in and getting settled in and everything. And you know how it is when you move in a house, you sure. get all the boxes together, and you finally break a sweat, and you're like, okay, let's all relax. So family was settled down. I was in my room playing a video game, of course, and um, <laughs> it was like 2 in the morning. And I, I started out with me hearing voices, um, like people talking above my head. And it was as if they were having a full-blown conversation. 
uh, I didn't, I really couldn't understand what exactly they were saying, but I knew for sure in my mind, in my little mind, that someone was in my house. (laughs) And I had to go figure out who it was. And then uh, later on, maybe about a month or two after that, uh, that entity started walking on our wooden floors at the same hour. It was almost like the same witching hour every Mm -hmm. night. And you could literally hear the displacement, like weight displacing the wooden floors, and it would walk all the way up, creak all the way up to my door, my bedroom door, and it would stop. And then, and then the room would be filled with this malevolent presence. And uh, I tell everybody this because it's just – it's the, the most to this day, even in my cases, this is the most alarming entity I've ever encountered. When it would enter my room, it would make me feel like I was the smallest, smallest particle in the universe – it would just take up everything in the room, and when it would just push me back into the into the corner, and for the longest time I didn't know what to do. I would pray, I would cry, I would turn the lights on. Um, you know, I actually failed a grade or two because, to be honest, man, I, I just there were nights where I couldn't sleep, and I only felt comfortable closing my eyes when the sun was out. And so, you know, especially in the school year. Yeah. You're getting maybe 45 minutes of sleep, and then you go to school and you basically pass out. So it was a really tough time, but I learned a lot during it. As you describe this, and you talk about this thing approaching your room uh, night after night, hearing it, hearing it walking across the floors again, anybody else having these experiences at that time? No, sir. No, sir. It wasn't until we actually moved out, ironically enough, that my father pulled me aside and he said, you know what, son? He said, I really never... Never wanted to tell you this because he said I didn't know how you'd handle it. He said, but when we moved in here the very first day, he said, I I just knew that someone had to have died a violent death in the house. He's like, I could just feel it. And I was like, well, that's nice to know now, now that, you know, we're leaving. (laughs) But, um, you know, they they had the things going on. He was working for a shift. My mom was working at a full-time job at a daycare. And so, you know, I, I can't really look back and say I fault anybody. It really built an immunity in me that I've been able to weaponize against these entities. How long were you in the house? How long did that experience last? About eight years. And you said you were how old when you moved in? Uh, about 12. Okay. Or no, sorry, eight. Eight, so you were yeah. a teenager when you left. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you left, did you feel a little battle-hardened? I did. Honestly, I did. Um, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to go into homes now and experience these entities and, and have an understanding of at least how they operate. And it's almost like I said before, you have an immunity, you have a weapon, you have a a shield. Uh, But I will never forget the very first night I saw the shadow figure. Um, It was was in the wintertime, and I had the lights off, and I had looked out the window, and there was a shadow figure staring at me, just looking at me. And I just instantly grabbed my pillow blanket, and I pulled my mattress off like I was the Hulk. Not even going to lie. I was not playing around that <laughs> night. And I threw it in my parents' bedroom, and I, you know, I hid from it. And the next day, I remember going to school, walking out and seeing two huge footprints in front of my windowsill. Actually left footprints. Yes, sir. And that's, that's something that's always stuck with me because at the time, you know, I was a part of the Christian tradition. And I'm thinking, okay, demon, demon, demon. Even though I was young, I knew what a demon was. You know, how do they have physicality? How does it have material, you know, how does it have that kind of dimensionality to it, that it can have footprints, and yet these entities can walk through walls? And that's, and that's another question that has really, you know, drove me into this research. 
So you left the house when you were 16. At what point, how many years later, did you decide you had to search for some answers? Mm. Well, I started preaching at 14. And so I was in the deliverance ministry. I preached all across the country until I was about 20. And Christianity? 20, you were preaching Christianity or something y- else? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Actually, specifically the denomination of Pentecostalism. And so at, at about 20 years old, I just kind of got disenchanted with it. And, and not, not just the religion itself, I shouldn't say that, I guess. But I, I really felt compelled to take my research, giftings, and experience and take it to a more secular venue. Because I was encountering people who, would, who needed help. They were, you know, they were having intense experiences malevolent hauntings, and they would never darken the doorstep of a church. And so I thought to myself, you know, I would be uh, more more gifted and more um, valuable to the field, I guess, if I could provide my services in that way, not just, you know, in a specific church. So the entity that you encountered in the home, you said, was the most malevolent entity you've ever encountered. So yes. you started with the, the most uh, menacing of your experiences, um, why do you think that's the case? Any any reason for that? I, I don't know. I knew that. Okay, the older I get now, and the more I look back at it, I know that based upon the entities that I've encountered, even at like going out to dinner, people that have dealt with this particular spirit, or uh, they they are they're always attracted to me, and the spirit is suicide, and and that's what I felt in that. And so that makes me think as to why why these people are attracted to me. Is you know is it possible that that entity that I encountered in that home was someone who committed suicide? Maybe you know that that kind of gives me an understanding. Hopefully, uh, but that entity what really traumatized a portion of me was how it had the ability to look into me. I mean, just in, like into in your most, soul, like. I'm sorry? Into your soul? like Everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it felt just co- like completely alien. It wasn't anything that I read in the Bible. It wasn't anything that I, you know, experienced at church. It wasn't, I, I, even my pastor, I knew that my pastor at the time, if he experienced this, he would have no frame of reference because this entity eclipsed any kind of dogmatism I was taught. And it just, it appeared, I mean, it, it didn't touch me physically. Um, it was more so just intimidating. And, and terrifying. And, and that's when I settled in my heart that maybe, maybe a lot of this is me not understanding what this entity is, number one. And number two, maybe I can interpret this as a language in addition to an, a haunting, right? And, and so that's what really got me into just some of the, some of the uh, psychology and pathology of these entities. And uh, that's what, you know, got me in this field, and that's why I'm here tonight. So as someone who uh, at some point made a decision to uh, investigate, research, explore these topics, these ideas, particularly the darker side of them, how did you start? Well, I was doing deliverance ministries for a while, Mm -hmm. and I I realized very quickly, even at the altar, that the entities that I was encountering, they they were not horns and hooves at all, at least that the kinds that I, were, I was taught. For instance, you know, we, we were, at least in my tradition, we were taught that uh, these demons, these entities, are either the offspring of fallen angels, or they are fallen angels in and of themselves. And yet what I was encountering were entities who believed in the same God that I did, and, and had the same faith and the same religious creed, and they were afraid of the same exorcistic rituals that I believed in. 
And so my question that I had to ask myself, according to the data sample, if the data sample does not fit the blueprint that I was taught, then I am intellectually obligated to trash that, that blueprint and interpret the data sample for what it is. And the data sample does not say we're dealing with fallen angels unless fallen angels are completely biblically illiterate or unless they're literally limited to the microcosm of time. Like, I've encountered entities that, that it's almost as if they lived in the 17th century and, and the languages, the language preference they use is, is trapped in that memory system, in that moment. And, and so if these entities are, are, are operating off of memory and if they have language preference, if they have a belief system in one area and they don't believe in another, then, then, then they're not fallen angels, unless fallen angels have different, have different heavens they fell from and if they have different gods that they disobeyed against. If that's, if that's the case, that's cool. But I doubt that any Abrahamic religion would claim that, and they don't. And so that's what really drove me head on into this and tried to understand this for what it is and not for what they want us to believe it is. How can uh, anyone, and it sounds like you've given this way more thought than many I've spoken to on this topic. Most, most, I have to. Yeah. I don't ever want people to go through what I went through. Yeah, and mo most people who consider themselves demonologists, you know, uh, charge into a place that someone claims is possessed or, you know, with a, with a demonic presence, with a, with a crucifix and start, you know, uh, reciting some prayers. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the extent of their knowledge. But you've really given this a lot of careful consideration far beyond what I've heard before. Sir, I, I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm, I stand on the shoulders of giants. There's demonologists that have lived and died before me that, that are just, they're gods in my eyes. Uh, but the reason I have to interpret this is because if we don't understand the darkness, if we, see, I, I treat this phenomenon like it's a sickness, like it's a disease. And that's why I always use the word pathology, because it's, it's high time that demonology understands that if this entity, if these entities mutate like a disease does, if they do that one more time, then demonology will never have an accurate understanding of what they are. And, and so that's, that's why I'm here. There's more to the story uh, than, than hauntology and going in and seeing possession cases. And so that's why I'm here, and that's what I, I hopefully can contribute to the discipline. When you started to uh, ex explore the phenomena itself, how were you able to make the determination between just, let's call it a normal haunting versus something that might be more sinister, something more demonic? It's when you encounter something that has a different belief system. And I'm not talking about a di different religious creed. It literally has a different belief system. It has a different currency value. If you and I told somebody I was on a show the other day, I said, "Listen, if you if you sit across from these what I call the, the serial killer entities, if you sit across from them, you would think that they're an alien, because it's almost as if they live in a different reality." And to answer your question more specifically, when you go into a home where there is a ritual occurring, that right there is separate from a normal. I'm going to say this, even just a normal malevolent evil ghost. When you, when you encounter something that's a calculated entity, it's predatory in nature, it is mani it's manipulative, and it, it, is, it is just diabolical. More so when you, see it, when you go into homes and you have figurines or statues where their noses or hands or feet are broken off, what is, what's, what's happening? That entity is performing a ritual in that home. I cannot stress this enough. Do, do, 
okay, how many cases have we witnessed where in the most violent hauntings, the families have realized sooner or later that there are small tic-tac things missing from their homes? Yeah, that's quite common. Yes. Why? Because they need these things to create and, and to do their rituals. It's, it's just like sorcerers. It's exactly like sorcerers. And so even like, okay, let's talk about the symbolism. When I go into homes and I see, you know, especially the, uh, the Mother Mary, Mariolatry, and I see that the entity has melted the fingertips or it's broken her nose or if there's some other kind of religious relic or even not even that, if there's like a statue of a football player and it's been defaced, it took me a long while to understand what it was they were trying to articulate. It's as if these entities are existing in an ancient belief system. Matter of fact, and to make that point even clearer, I was watching a lecture at the Oriental Institute the other day, and it was an Egyptologist talking about how in archaeology they were unearthing statues that have never been touched, but, and you know, the ground has never been disturbed before. And yet these statues had their heads broken off or their noses were broken off, and pieces, like strategic pieces of the body, were broken off. And they went back into their ritual bowls and went back into their exorcistic rites in Egyptology, even Mesopotamia and Sumer. And what they realized was that these exorcists believed that entities, possessing entities, that when they could not, no, if they could no longer possess a statue, and if, or if they didn't want to, they would literally break something off of that statue. And guess what they would break? The nose, a finger, a hand, or a, or a foot. Now, that's, that's the data sample. So I, I took that and I began to study the debook phenomenon in the 16th century. And if you go back into their exorcistic rites and you talk to Isaac Luria and you read Jaime Vital's work, they did the exact same thing. They would literally barter with the possessing entity and say, listen, when you leave this person, I want you to tell me where you're going to leave. Usually it was the toenail because it was the least painful. And then when they would leave that area, there would be a physical scar or something broken, something very small, broken, to let everyone around them know that that entity is no longer possessing them. So we're – I'm not trying to ramble here, but no, I guess not. what I'm saying is these entities are existing in a very ancient belief system. And until, we, until our eyes adjust to that darkness, they're going to keep victimizing everyone we treasure. You've um... – You've presented a lot of new ideas here, but if I had to boil it down a little bit, just so we can kind of encapsulate it here, are we still talking about uh, an understanding that demonic entities are somehow related to an, uh, uh, what we understand to be um, an evil side of uh, the religions that we have been uh, taught yes. and and learned to appreciate is it that same teaching are those teachings accurate is that what we're talking about it is it is and it isn't and, and by that this is what i mean uh, if you go into biblical antiquity in sumer mesopotamia and that fertile crescent area of the world a lot of their demons weren't really demons at all they, they would literally assign value and blame to entities that didn't exist and so a lot of times they were personifications of diseases so you would have the demon of fever or the demon of a headache. There's no demons of headache. There's no demons of a fever. These were natural phenomena, right? Even like plagues, the demon of plagues. Right. But that's not to say you didn't have entities like Lamishtu. 
And this is where it gets very interesting. Lamishtu, we can find it in, in, in the Bible. It was called Pakad Lila in Psalms 91, or Lilith for all of the other uh, researchers out there. Lamishtu embodies everything that we're looking at and experiencing in modernity. She was somehow divine, and yet she only victimized children because she somehow never had children. Then how is she divine? No, not at all. <laughs> what, what, what they were dealing with, what they really feared the most, was not horns and hooves. They were not semi-divine entities. They feared the walking dead, and that's truly what they experienced. And what was so fascinating about that, guys, is that the reason they believed that this, this entity, this, this demonic woman, uh, never had kids was because they understood the victimology. She victimized, she victimized mothers and children, specifically babies. And so if we took that understanding and we literally went into hauntology and possession cases and walked into a haunted scene like a crime scene and reverse engineered the psychology of these entities, just like a criminal profiler, then we could, I mean, we could literally understand the, the psychology of these entities. And, and I've always said this about this, man. If, if we can understand what they value, then we can understand what to fight for. And right now... We're fighting with everything we have, and they're eclipsing everything we have. If they don't want to be on our radar, they won't be. If they, they can walk through walls and then, and then materialize and punch us square in the face. I, I had a case like that. The guy, had, the guy had, a, um, he had a stroke because of it the next day. So that's why it's so important uh, to just, you know, the data sample has to speak for itself, and, and I'll stop rambling. No, it's, this is this is this is fascinating and terrific, and I, I'm really really impressed by your thoughtfulness on all of this. But um, so what's what is the what are the weapons against these entities? Are they the Christian or the religious symbols that we've been taught? They are. Are is is it the force of God itself, or is it something else? Is it our own will? It's all of the above. It really is. Uh, a lot of times. Okay, let me say this. What really changed my understanding of demonology and possession was going back into the 16th century and, and really researching what's called the Kabbalistic approach to exorcism. And uh, so, you know, you have what's called systematic demonology, and that's where, that's more, that's where like, the Catholicism, that, that's where it falls into. That's just essentially the teaching that these entities are, they, they have an hierarchy. You've got Beelzebub and Leviathan and all these different names, and that's okay. But when you start to get to the data sample, like in the 16th century, uh, you didn't have Leviathan. You did not have Beelzebub. You had in, either an entity, a person who was killed before their time, and for whatever reason, they were in between, they're liminal beings, they're beings in between the worlds. Or you had another entity that, that I think a lot of us are encountering. And again, it's literally like you're standing across from somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer, who has an IQ of 170 or 160, and his belief system's different. And so what Jaime Vital, an exorcist in the 16th century, and Isaac Luria did, his mentor, what they would do is they would begin to discuss the value systems that a lot of these entities had. I mean, he would encounter entities that did not believe in Yahweh, had no fear of Yahweh in them. And yet, so that what they would have to do is go find an imam, a Muslim imam, and say, listen, can you quote the Hadith to them? And then suddenly, out of nowhere, that entity reveals what it believes in. Why? Because that's what it responds to. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? Does that yeah. make sense at all? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. Uh, so you've you've mentioned um, Islam. We've talked a lot about Christianity. Uh, there's Judaism. Which of these religions, or is it another one, actually has a better handle on all of this? I think all of them do. I think that it's a very good question, and I'll tell you what. Whoever has the the person that has the best handle on on the idea of demonology, it, it really depends on who we're dealing with in the terms of possession. What does that particular possessing entity believe in? Because whoever that person is, right, whoever uh, represents that religion at that time, that's the greatest demonologist right there, you know, in that situation, I guess. So my point is this. It, it really depends on what possessing entity we're dealing with. And I mean, specifically the demonology in Abrahamic religions, they're all one and the same. They just say it in different ways. Uh, the biggest problem for Abrahamic religions is that we've been taught that we're dealing with semi-divine or divine beings. And uh, that's all cool, you know, it's all well and good. The data sample doesn't speak of it. Unless these, you know, unless these entities are responding to 18th century additions to the Holy Bible that authored them. No. <laughs> How common uh, is this phenomenon to begin with? I know that there seems to have been a resurgence, or not necessarily a resurgence, but an increase in activity. Uh, at least if you believe what the Catholic Church is saying, they have a greater demand for exorcists than they have had in quite some time. Um, we obviously hear about it here on this program and other programs like this are hearing more and more about this stuff. Are we just paying more attention to it, or is it actually increasing in frequency? I think it's increasing in frequency. There's a gross darkness that has overshadowed this world. And even more so, we are dealing with attachments. And a lot of times people don't understand what attachment is. They don't know what it's, why it's grooming them and how it's grooming them. And so I think that it's, it's due to two things. It's due to um, just a lack of understanding and insight to what these entities are about. And, and, and that's what they're experiencing. Uh, in addition to a darkness that is just stretching and wreaking havoc. And so, you know, how, how do we understand that? How do we weaponize it? We understand, first of all, that attachments are their way of grooming us. There are people who uh, offer services such as removing attachments, and they can identify attachments. Can you do either of those? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I don't, like, charge, obviously, but, yeah. I mean, I, I was at a, a restaurant about two years ago, just, you know, smoking my cigar, reading my literature. Uh, I was on my downtime, <laughs> and a friend of mine brought a girl to me, and she was with her boyfriend. And uh, he said, listen, I know what you do. And he said, I think that she needs to talk to you. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to give insight into this, because I think this is very germane to the field. I didn't realize it until after it happened. I thought, oh, my God. But uh, she had sat down across from me with her boyfriend, and she told me a story. She said, I'm here, she said, because my best friend's grandfather, everybody remember that. She said, my best friend's grandfather was chased out of his home by a, a spirit. He had a heart attack. He died in his front yard. She said, and so my best friend is still living in that house, and she's terrified. I think that she needs your help. As I was sitting there, I took a puff of my cigar, and I looked at her, and I, I just I saw. The only way I can explain it, I saw a dark cloud just descend down upon her and just envelop her. And I looked at her, and I said, okay. I said, I know that your friend needs help. And I said, and I can help her. And I said, I know that, you know, there's an entity in that home. I can, you know, assist you guys in that area too. I said, but I think that there is a girl that needs help here, but it's not her. Well, I said, I just saw an attachment of suicide. That's what I'm saying. That's why I think that's why I encountered what I encountered it in my youth, because 
you know, I encounter entities like this often, but I said it, there's an attachment of suicide that just manifested over your shoulder. And I said, I know my gift well enough to know that I only see what you want me to see. And I said, so I'm going to deal with a girl right now, and it's going to be you. And I just began to talk to her, and I, I, I felt that the, the, the attachment to suicide was someone who committed suicide. And so I employed what's called an exorcistic rite from Isaac Luria. Isaac Luria taught his students in the 16th century that if you have someone who's plagued by the entity, you can talk to the entity, and when you heal that entity, deliver that entity, by delivering him or her, you can deliver the victim at the very same time. And so what I began to do is I began to talk to that entity through her by talking to her. She had no idea what was going on. So I began to, to give her her consent back, give her, and I began to say, listen, I need you to understand something. These emotions are not yours. The feelings and heaviness of sadness and depression, these are not yours. I mean, it just had, it had just destroyed everything in her life, her relationship with her family, her boyfriend. It was awful. And she didn't know. She couldn't tell. She just probably <sighs> assumed her life was hell and she was having a bad luck with everything. But it was something more than that. She began to cry, and I'll never forget this. Oh, God. She held her hand out. Her hand was trembling. She put my fingertips on the scarification of that attachment. She said, this time last year, I slipped both of my wrists. Oh, wow. And I said, okay. I said, now, who in your family, uh, who, who's done this? You know, what is this attachment? Is it familial to you? Here we go, guys. You ready? This blew my mind. This was an. She said, "Yes, sir. My grandfather killed himself in 2014." Wow. And I said, "Okay, so that's the girl that came here for help, and it was a grandfather involved." Now, right? It wasn't her friend. Obviously, that happened, but she came there for a reason, even though she didn't understand it. And let me t- say this, guys. A lot of times, these entities will cloud the understanding. They will silence the screaming of their victims. So much so that people will reach out to you guys, reach out to us in the field, and they might not even understand why they are. And so that's what really taught me how these entities, some of these entities will groom their victims and literally silence them into submission. And thankfully, that's not what happened with her. Um, She even, on my Instagram page, you guys can look it up. She did like a 15-minute testimonial on that day. It was just a profound moment. It's, they sound very parasitic. Yeah, predatory, parasitic. And I, I used to think that it was just them being hungry. No, they're taking things from us to apply to themselves physically and spiritually. And um, that's my next book is going to be about that. These entities are trying to re- – at least some of these possessing entities are literally trying to recreate a body for themselves. And uh, that's my philosophy. I think that uh, if, if we're not dealing with the serial killer entities – we're dealing with almost it's like baby Hueys out there that are just test running people just so that when they understand the world they live in, that they can possess something for, you know, a more permanent time. And that right there is the game. That's exactly what we're fighting for. What do you see when you say that you saw a suicide uh, presence? What, what tells you that it's suicide versus something else? Uh, OK, so I saw. Really, it was like a, a smoky, shadowy apparition that just laid upon her. Uh, first of all, when, when I saw the laying motion, my mind went back to the earliest pictorial tradition 
of a dibuk or a dibuk. Uh, that and that picture, that that image is quite chilling. It's literally a man carrying a skeleton like a garment over him as he's walking. It's on his back. He's carrying it. So when I saw that motion, I knew, okay, that's an attachment, and whoever that attachment is, it's deceased. And when it laid upon her, it was dark. And usually when I encounter those entities, it's depression, low self-esteem, um, you know, suicidal ideology. And so here's, the, here's, the, here's the, where the war is being waged. Before they conform, before you guys or they, anybody, before we conform to them, they will conform to us. And that was the process that I was watching. It had already conformed to her. That's why it laid on her like a garment. And so that's where I knew what stage of attachment this entity was. It had already groomed her. It was already getting consent. And when it got consent, now it was going to act. And how does it act? Do the same thing that I did. And that's very alarming. Uh, we have a couple of uh, questions that are scrolling through our chat room. It's going to take us a little bit off track, but I do want to ask them before they uh, I lose them. Um, someone asked about familiars. Uh, can you comment about familiars? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What would be the question, or you just want to comment on them? There's no specific question. Just said ask them about familiars. Okay. Well, I think that when we understand the idea of familiars, we don't get them from... Um, I guess amateurs. We get them usually from people who have been in at least if witchcraft, Wicca, or not Wicca, at least never, uh, but you know, witchcraft, especially sorcerers. And when, they have, when they're gifted enough and they've went through their experiences and, and actually went through the ranks of these entities, to have a familiar, a true familiar, it's different. And don't mess with it because a lot of times they'll just test you and, and it's not worth it. Uh, so a lot of people who aren't in that, I mean, if you're not Crowley, if you're not um, in that kind of hierarchy, then they will not respect you. And I'm sure we have little imps and familiars that come and give information and say, listen, do you have my keys? And this is where my keys are. And that's cool. All up until it becomes an attachment to you. Because make no mistake, a lot of these entities will act like it likes you. It's here for you. We're cool. I'm your best friend. And sooner or later, you'll, get, you'll give it consent and it will wear you like a social skin. And then it's got you. So, you know, that, that would be my one statement about familiars. Another question, can you vanquish a fallen angel in the name of Jesus or a hellhound? Um, this particular uh, listener says that they experienced a hellhound and obviously very scared of it. Well, I don't know about hellhounds. I can say this. I can say this. There's nobody in the Bible that vanquished a fallen angel. None. None. Yeshua, Yeshua okay, Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. He just literally quoted the Torah. It is written. It is written. It is written. I mean, how about, how, no, I mean, we can't do it. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Why? Because if it's a true fallen angel, we can't do anything. And I'm not saying that to me, it's a trick question. No, there's not, you know, I curse you, I, you know, in the name of Jesus or anything like that. If they respond to that, then it's not a fallen angel. Does that make sense? And I think that goes into this other ideology that I've been having lately is, uh, what is a fallen angel? If it's an angel, is it fallen? If it's fallen, why is it still an angel? Right. So why, why do I say that? You know, why do you say that, Nathan? Because if we look at this through the eyes of being disincarnate spirits, they will, you will 100% get rid of them with the name of Jesus. Right? That's why every ex – how about this, guys? That's why every exorcistic rite in the Holy Writ 
was performed on mortals, for mortals, and written for mortals in the Old Testament. They didn't throw holy water on horns and hooves. They threw holy water on unclean people. Right. So, then that that I know there's <laughs> there's a lot there. My apologies. <laughs> no, is, these are great. Uh, another question is what protects these entities? Where do they draw their power from? They draw their power from consent. Like I said before, imagine a predator, imagine a serial killer who will look at every vulnerability in you and look at whatever you're willing to get rid of for, you know, the feeling of power. A lot of entities will use, um, you know, substance abuse to get into people. And, uh, and it's, it's a really sickly manner that they perform these acts. But, yeah, they look for emptinesses in you voids in you, any kind of um, unforgiveness, anything like, like a trauma that hasn't, has yet to be dealt with. Uh, like, like, how about this? How about the incubus cases where people have not uh, really dealt with their grief one night, and specifically widows, and then one night you'll have an incubus that manifests as the apparition of the deceased husband. Why? Because it's feeding on us. Okay, and, and so... I guess I hope that answers the question. There's a lot more to get into in that area, though. Yeah, it does. Um, how how much of the uh, what we would consider to be, um, I guess, bad behavior among people, maybe people we know, mm-hmm. is driven by these forces versus just bad decisions by the person themselves? Okay, that's a very good question. And I will say this: when you under when you when you see somebody who, in psychology, they call it splitting or uh, disassociative identity disorder, DID. When you see somebody who is completely not themselves, and and, in addition to that, they're not just evil, but there's a ritual involved. Why do I say that? Because I've been doing a lot of research lately uh, on on how a lot of these entities have these circular pathology. I I mean, they absolutely do. Uh, For instance, uh, who was it? Jeffrey Dahmer, his last victim, at least the, the one that survived, said that he literally went inside the bathroom, came outside to see Jeffrey Dahmer incoherently rambling in another language, watching The Exorcist. Why? And that's the pathology. that yeah. these, and, and you'll see their pathology and how systematic they are. Uh, matter of fact, Jeffrey Dahmer one night crushed a body. Uh, he burned it. Uh, yeah, cremated it, and then took the bones and in a circular fanning motion sprinkled them all around his lawn, then came out of the trance and didn't remember it. Why? See, see, see I'm not saying that they don't have a part in this. No, I'm saying they've obviously given consent. But what we're seeing in that moment is a total 100%, at least Malachi Martin would call a perfect possession. So to answer your question, when you, if you want to see a real entity, a real demon, it's not just going to be someone who's evil or even someone who, who takes life. But these entities, it's not enough for them. The reason they're taking life and the reason they're getting substances and, and milking the carcasses of the dead like Father Sinistrari called them doing, why are they doing that? It's, it's not what they're taking, it's what they're using it for. So to answer the question is, what are they taking, first of all, and how are they using it? Is it a ritual to them? Are they scarring people? Okay, how many incubus cases have we had where women or young girls drown, almost drown in the water, gets out of the water, and the entity has carved in the flesh just the most sinister, sickly uh, words? Why? What's he doing with that act? What's he really after? And I think that's where we can really understand these entities. I'm not, I don't want to hear descriptions. I heard that my whole life, right? 
<laughs> I want to know the definitions, and that's where that's where understanding is uh, what they value. You know, occasionally we'll get a news headline or a story that crosses our desk or our, our Facebook's uh, feed or something that says, you know, says uh, a woman killed in an exorcism right or something along those lines and but putting those aside we don't often hear uh man dies of a demonic possession in his home that's not a very common headline is is the 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 writing between the lines here that as you described in the in the situation with the grandfather of the girl that these forces will actually drive you to a point where you could be harmed or even die from some kind of a natural occurrence that your body is using as a response to what they're doing. So it looks like a natural death. Is that a common occurrence? Uh, absolutely. Malachi Martin, the goat in my book, Malachi Martin, um, he had that happen to him. And I, I know that a lot of people don't like to, to think about that. I'm I really, you know, I, I have to be truthful here. He literally said that in his, in his study, he was on a stool, a shadow figure ran by, kicked the stool out from under his feet, he hit his head on the corner of the table. Yeah. Yeah. So here, here's what has to happen, guys, and I, I, I can't stress this enough. They're playing by a different rule system here, and if they're playing by different rules, then they're playing a different game. And if we don't understand the game they're playing... And if we're limiting ourselves to religious dogma, then we've lost the fight before it's ever began. And we're limited. And so that's why I've been trying to just kick down these walls and say, listen here, man, you know, there's a lot of these entities that, that Father Sinistrari said they're pagan. They wouldn't respond to anything. So if that's the case, then we have to look at what they value and what they believe in. And that, that's many times that's case by case nature. Are we starting to get an understanding of that? I mean, obviously, with the work that you're doing, you seem to have a uh, a better handle. I don't know if you've got real uh, confirmed answers, because I don't know that we can have those types of answers. But you seem to have turned a corner here that maybe not many have turned. Are you starting to see this more clearly? Absolutely. Yes, sir. And it's, you know, it's like, like you said, I'm not saying that I have all the facts or all the answers. But I'll tell you what, the right question is better, infinitely more valuable than the wrong answer. And my God, if my life is spent asking the right questions, then maybe the generation next, you know, the, the next generation can really further this. But I do, I do have noticed in many cases, even back into the Middle Ages, uh, that, that ufology, demonic possession, and even, watch this, guys, and here's something that most have never heard of, demonic impregnation. Ooh. Yeah, Rabbi Zakudo, Kabbalistic rabbi at a case where a lady had had a dream. She had a dream where she was having intercourse with a spirit, thought it was a dream, no big deal. She gets possessed by this entity and then goes to the exorcist, and the exorcist looks at her belly and sees that spirit crawled up in her belly in the fetal position. And that leads me to my next question. Is possession pregnancy? If it's not, why is the Islamic exorcistic right begin and end with, first, have you had a dream of intercourse with another person? Secondly, if you have, have you had a dream that you're pregnant with his child? Hmm. This sounds a lot like UFO abduction to me. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's all encompassing. I, I am a part of 
Like I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Barry Fitzgerald and Steve Mara. I am very much a part of the unified field theory. And so, you know, that's where I'm leaning towards. We're talking tonight with Nathan Gillis. Uh, we're talking about his work as a demonologist. Nathan, you, I, I didn't see a website here. Where do people go uh, before we continue our conversation if they want to get more information about what you do and your work? Okay. My website is njgillis.com. The last name is G-I-L-L-I-S. And then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as Nathaniel J. Gillis. And uh, my website has my information, my upcoming and past experience. Uh, Appearances, appearances, rather. And, uh, you know, some of my research is on there, and you can get in contact with me and, and all that stuff. We've talked about demons uh, all night, uh, but there's another word, a dibbic. Is that the same thing? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The dibbic is just the Hebrew word for possession. And, um, yeah, so a dibbic is not a just an entity that possesses people. It's specifically a disincarnate entity. It's a dead person. And they can be good or bad. Your, your good people are people who've died outside of their time, people who've died of tragedy, um, you know, murder, or even sometimes suicide. And those are, those are usually the people that need help. And that's another fascinating thing, an, an insight into that next dimension. They'll possess people because they want a proper burial. It matters to them. They'll possess people because they want prayer. I, I tell this to everybody. Jaime Vital in the 16th century had a case where he was sleeping. <laughs> and it didn't start out as a case, it started out as a dream. Uh, he was sleeping in the night, and uh, his favorite student ever, who had died the year before, comes to him in a dream and says, Master, I am of need of thee. And he said, I need help. And he said, tomorrow I will come to you. And so this is a dibbit, guys. This is awesome. Jaime Vital gets up the next day, cooks breakfast, goes out his work day, cooks dinner, winds down, is in bed, and thinks to himself, maybe I missed it. You know, maybe that wasn't really my, my favorite student. So he, you know, goes to bed, turns the light off, and there's a knock at the door. The door eerily opens, and he sees in the, in the shadows, he sees a, a mother and a daughter. And before he can utter a word, the daughter strips her hand out of her mother's hand, runs to him, hugs him, and says, Master, I told you I would come to you today. That's a dibbic. Wow. Um, as we continue uh, exploring these ideas, uh, mm -hmm. do people get uh, put themselves in danger by in researching, investigating, maybe even attempting an exorcism that they might not be qualified for? Is that a dangerous thing for somebody to do? Exorcism is more so than researching. And that's why I try to balance my time in the field with my time in research. Uh, so, you know, the literature gives me the historical context of what we're dealing with. Then I go into homes and I say, okay, maybe I can use what I've learned to get a better grasp on what I'm experiencing and encountering. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people ask me that because they think, oh, man, you must be haunted or attachments galore. Not really. And I don't know if that's for everybody. Maybe it's not. I think, honestly, I think it's just because of what I went through as a young, young man. And I think that, uh, you know, I don't know if they know me or I know them. I, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about uh, a word that you brought up. Uh, I think you did. You said alien abduction. Mm -hmm. Where do where's the line, and and how blurred is it between these two phenomena? It's not okay. It's blurred to us in modernity. It was never blurred to them in antiquity, ever. 
Okay, so, so watch this. Uh, in what's called, our, what's called the Emar Manuscripts, this goes all the way back into the Iron Age. It goes back to Mesopotamia. You have two entities that they were fearful of. And at first, these entities were living incarnate humans. Okay? The first one was a midwife. That was Lamishtu. Lamishtu was feared in Egyptology as well as a woman who would breastfeed someone else's child and kill the child. That's what they're afraid of. But in the Emar manuscripts, it describes two entities, the, the exorcist, who was more or less a sorcerer, who would use fumigants and would literally bind the body, you know, depending on if they wanted the child to be born or not, uh, you know, prematurely. You would have those entities. You would have the, the exorcist. You would have the midwife. The midwife was the one who would help birth a child after she cut the cord and all that stuff. Then she would wrap it up and bring the child back to her. Ding, ding, ding. UFO abduction. Then you have the exorcist who would use what's called scatology. Scatology was, uh, you know, formulating different potions and, and different medical uh, practices and fumigants and different, just incredible, like, they, they, all, they had the most amazing advancements even back then. But you had the doctor, you had the physician, the midwife, right? You had the physician and the midwife. So that plays into uh, UFO abduction because you will encounter two entities. You will encounter the role of the midwife, the one who will take the baby you have probably never seen and give it back to you as if that's supposed to happen, okay? That's, that's, that's the role they're playing. Uh, but, but possession, and if we can go there, or do you just want to stick on to uh, alien abduction? Because yeah. I can draw the, 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 you know, the contrast and no, comparisons. Move, move where you feel it needs to move. Go ahead. Okay, so, so possession has always begun with the act of intercourse. That was their intention. This is fascinating. And most of, okay, so incubus and the dybbuk, they're the same things. They're not two separate entities. Demons are not what they do, they're what they believe in. And so you're your incubus in, in Europe and your incubus in the States, are, they're, just, they're, they're the dybbuk in, in Mesopotamia and in Israel. So the dybbuk would literally slither into someone's room at nighttime uh, groom the wife into intercourse, put a child in her, and then leave. Now, here's the problem we're, we're dealing with, okay? Father Sinistrari experienced these incubus cases, and he wrote many times how he would go into the, the homes, like within an hour of the event taking place, he would collect semen samples. So there was an actual substance carried with these entities. Can I keep going? Yes. Okay. The substances that they collected were old. They were black, gray, orange. Matter of fact, he called a congress of physicians, sat down with them and said, listen, according to your research, what does this look like? That is when that they in unison agreed, and here's the most chilling aspect of this. This goes back to Genesis 6. This goes back to the Watchers. He said, it appears as if these entities are abducting people, or I should say that, they, he said this, that they were going into graveyards at nighttime and milking the carcasses of the deceased, harvesting organic substances, showing up to those who are living, and through intercourse, placing it in their bodies. Now, why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. 
because even in Dr. Carla Turner's work, she had an abductee named Ted Rice who was abducted at nine years old. He was abducted with his grandmother. His grandmother is abducted. They get into the ship, and an entity comes to her and tries to groom her into intercourse. She makes one statement. She says, I, I was a virgin when I married my husband. He's the only man I've known. I'm not doing anything. So within five seconds, here comes an apparition of her deceased husband. Wow. See, it's not just intercourse. Possession's pregnancy. And that whole purpose of that ritual they're employing, and they've been doing it since uh, – I've been reading what's called the Apocryphon of John. It's a Coptic text. They've been doing it since Genesis 6. They'll appear to people uh, in the f- form or frame of someone they've loved or they love, and they'll, they'll appear in, in any form they can in order to get consent for intercourse. So intercourse was never their intention. There was never – so if we go even into Eris and Evil, uh, which is a book written by R.E.L. Masters, and it's about medieval witchcraft, they had the same encounters with quote-unquote demons. It was never about intercourse. It was always about pregnancy. It was about creating what's called a social skin to possess it. Now, see, we're used to entities that possess random people. Right. We have not experienced yet this circular pathology here where they will literally implant themselves in you and then step into the body. I'm not saying that. That's not me. That's history. And we can get into the Apocryphon of John and how they created what are called copies of bodies whose image, the material skin, was literally the physical image of the apparition that hovered over the woman at nighttime. These entities are sick. Forgive this question because you may have answered it, um, but when we talk about a pregnancy in this instance, are we talking about a physical pregnancy yes. or a spiritual pregnancy? Uh, I think it's both. Uh, it's both because they're putting, a, they're putting a body in and they're going to put a spirit in there too. So now, the, the body, I mean, the, the woman would actually give birth to this body? Yes. As, as, a, as we would consider a normal birth to occur? Uh, I don't think so. I think what's happening is, again, you'll have the midwife. They'll come to you. Like, like before, first of all, before you need a midwife or an exorcist, you, at least you know, in Mesopotamia, you would have to have intimacy, right? You would have to right. have either intimacy with your husband or something. <laughs> and to answer that question, because this ties into the debook, right, the possession cases and the incubus cases, they're all one and the same. We just never saw it, at least until the 21st century. But in the Apocryphon of John, it's a, it's a Coptic text. It's a Coptic manuscript preserved by Egyptian monks in the, between the 2nd and 4th centuries A.D. Okay, this is about Genesis 6. Are you familiar with that, that legend there, the, the angels that fell and married women and stuff? Yes, of course. We've talked about it on this program before. Okay. So in the Apocryphon of John, uh, it talks about how these entities gained consent within their victims. This blew me away. It blew me in a way in a sense that you know, I, I couldn't look away, and, but it, just, I, it was so bad. It was so awful, but it fit into the pathology. They're still doing the same thing. Apocryphon of John. I've got to slow down. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. All right. Apocryphon of John says that these entities first appeared to these wives in Genesis 6 in the image of their husbands. Hmm. That's why in Genesis 6 it says they took unto them wives. They weren't their wives. It was someone else's. Mm. 
They showed up as their husbands. Now, and then during the act of intercourse, as, as the husband and the wife, that entity is appearing to that woman like the husband. And then at the moment of impregnation, I'm going to stop there and say this. Remember, guys, how I told you they're operating in an ancient belief system? Mm-hmm. Okay. During the moment of impregnation, that apparition will instantaneously reverse its appearance back to its original form and then stare into the face of that woman. That's all throughout UFO abduction. That's all throughout incubus cases. It's crazy. So why would they do that? Because it's an obstetric belief that during intercourse, at the moment of impregnation, whatever that woman is staring at, whatever her eyes are fixated upon, she will be pregnant with and birth the material image of. So what is that entity doing? It's an apparition without a body. What is it creating? It's creating a body that's mirroring its apparition. This is far more sinister than anything we've, yes, we've approached yes, in this topic. Yeah, this is, this is a whole new chapter, or maybe it several. It is. See, they, see, we're used to entities just picking people out of the crowd. That, that's okay. That's, that's your amateurs. And I hate to say that, but it is. Those are your people who are literally just trying people on and figuring out how this stuff works. These other entities are creating what are called copies of bodies. Fritz Kramer, the German anthropologist, called possession the, the acting in the social skin. Literally, I, I'm a spirit without a body. I want a body. How can I do it? You know, and that's why Sinistrari said it's not that these entities. Okay, let me back up. It was always a, it was always problematic for me in Genesis six to believe that fallen angels somehow had sperm. How did they have seed? Right. They didn't. See, is that is that why a lot of these male abductees are being abducted, and what are they taking from them? Not fingerprints. They're taking seed. Right. Yeah. So, so they're doing it, at least in my research, they're doing it with the deceased, the recently deceased, and with the living. And Sinistrari stepped all over the, the, that pathology when he, when he gathered his doctors in one room and said, okay, it's almost as if they're milking the deceased. That's what they're doing. And it's, like I told you guys, and, and you know, I'm not saying I have the answers, but I'm saying this, this – uh, this is being more apparent to me as we go on. Yeah, once again, we've got a lot of questions floating through chat about uh, the offspring. After one of these pregnancies occurs, what is actually uh, birthed and what happens to that? You won't see it. You won't see it. Matter of fact, uh, even in UFO abduction uh, phenomenon, your women who have, have had experiences with an incubus or an apparition, uh, they'll have a pregnancy they just won't realize it, or they will realize it, and then one day they'll, think, they'll realize it's con. You know, I mean, if we get into Dr. Carla Turner's work, Bud Hopkins, John Mack, over and over and over again, these entities, you know, they'll come in and take the baby and the ovaries, right? Why? Because they're the one that put it in there. They're using us. They're using our genetics, 
our biological essences, our substances, to create what are called copies of bodies. Now, I'm going to throw something out there just to see if this makes sense. Now, why would these entities want what are called copies of bodies? It's literally the copies of the same bodies, right? So you have one apparition, mm -hmm. and he's making five or six second selves. Well, in, in uh, what's called the Red Bow, uh, James Frazier talks about what he considered to be an external soul. And an external soul was a body, a physical manifestation. It was mortal. It was a body. And what it was used by ancient warriors. And what they would do is during battle, when they knew that the death was impending, they would dispossess their own body and possess someone else's so that their body dies. But because they're not with it, they survive. That's what Genesis 6 was about. I'm creating copies of me. See, and, that, and I'm going to say this, and then I'll, I'll shut up, and we can go wherever you want to go. But <laughs> I will say this. If they're creating copies of bodies, then they're preparing for war. <laughs> it's a – I mean, you just opened up in a whole a, – a door here that I don't – I'm, I'm a, kind of afraid to step through, but I don't think we can avoid stepping through this. Mm -hmm. What's the big picture here? Are we preparing for a – War of some kind? I think they are. Well, they are, and we're unwitting, um, but um, maybe we should be preparing? I, I think so, and I don't think that, that they have as much power as we think they do, to be honest. Because if they didn't need us, if we didn't have power, then they wouldn't need us. They wouldn't have to have certain parts of us. And so the, only, the way to weaponize us and weaponize our giftings and our abilities is to create a movement where science and religion sits down and has a heart-to-heart -heart talk and dogmatisms crucified to where Christianity, even all of religion, says, okay, listen, we have belief systems and, and traditions that science doesn't hold to, but science has revelations and innovations that we never experienced. So before we can move into the 21st century and the next dimension, we have to first embrace the interior giftedness of humanity. And, and if this, this battle that we're waging, if it's taught us anything, it is that we are far more valuable together than we are individually. So, what do we, so there has to be unification. What do we do individually to prepare, and what do we do as a society to prepare? Is this, is this a circumstance where we need to look to religion, or what, what other options are there? Yes, sir. Religion, and again, uh, at least to, to understand the two different ways that they will victimize people, uh, the first one is your thoughts. That's where it begins, all the, every single time, at least for the possession cases and attachments. And, and the way they do it is specifically with people with low self-esteem self or, uh, let's see here, substance abuse issues, any kind of trauma in the past. What it will do is it will come to you intellectually in your mind, and it will suggest something. It will send you a fault. And that, that, at that point, that's an exterior entity. And, and, and with that thought, there will come emotions, that it, those emotions will trigger memories. And then at that moment, there will be a statement that you'll hear, and it'll be something along the lines of, you deserved it. 
you're the reason, and I, I deal with this a lot with uh, young women, you, you, you know, you, you're, you're, you're why your father left you. No wonder your husband beat you. It's yeah. your fault. You know, you're not good enough. Or if it's the husband, you don't make enough money and, you know, nobody loves you. And what it tries to do is it tries to seclude you, tries to make you its friend. And that's one, the one way to get rid of that is, when, is to, to be healed and gotten through all that enough to know the difference between your thoughts and its thoughts. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, we don't have a lot of time left here. I'm not okay. sure... Uh, I'm not sure where to take the conversation because you brought up so many points and so many things we still need to address. However, um, we're going to have to have you back on. But uh, I mean, you've got a lot. You've got a lot of people, at least from what I'm judging in our chat room, nervous. Uh, clearly, no. for good with good reason. These are well, these yeah. these are some important points. Should they be nervous? No, they shouldn't be nervous. No, they shouldn't be nervous. I'm, I'm going to say this, guys. Again, we do not know our own potential. They have, we- they have weaponized and victimized our ignorance, none of them, our ignorance of ourselves. We're awesome. We just don't know it yet. We are, I mean, it, it, that's all I can say. I mean, my God, we are the it. And so I think that's, that's why, until we understand that in new dimensions and we unite, I mean, that, that's really what they're going to feed off of. And so there's no reason to be nervous, and I hope that I didn't really cause that big of a wave. I was just, you know, interpreting some of the data. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your book. Okay. Uh, my book right now is uh, it's on Amazon. It's called A Moment Called Man. And uh, I wrote that in honor of a friend that I had that um, he overdosed, and uh, he was an empath. And uh, so a lot of the people that I deal with and, and not really counsel, but they come to me for just advice are empaths who don't know it yet. And so this book is specifically for empaths who um, are medicating the gifts within them that are designed to be manifested. And so my friend medicated what he should have been manifesting. And so I wrote that book for him and for all of the other empaths who, you know, even in my case, it took me a long time to realize what I was as well. I wrote that book for them. Uh, so my second book is going to be out soon, and uh, that's going to be my very first book on demonology. And it's not going to be as dark. I'm, you know, I didn't want to make everything dark tonight. If I did, I apologize. No, this is this has been a great discussion, and um, I want you to give out your website again and mm-hmm. your Instagram and let people know once again how they can follow your work and stay uh, close to what you're doing. Yes, sir. My my website is njgillis.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as uh, NathanielJGillis.com. And I am on YouTube, but I have no videos. So, like, don't <laughs> I, I had a couple like a couple people subscribe to me. I'm like, man, I ain't got no, no videos. What are you subscribing to? And, 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 and I've got to ask you this, too, because yeah. you said, I think you may have used the word you're a former gamer, but regardless, what games did you, uh, what video games were you into uh, when we were talking about that? Uh, man, I used to, I'm old school. All right, uh-huh, uh-huh. I am. I'm not even ashamed of it. I played. I played Bruce Lee's Dragon. Oh wow! Yeah, that's how old school I was. And I, I yeah, I beat that game so many times. But wow. uh, that's what always bugged me. I'm sitting here blistering Bruce Lee's demon right out of drag the Dragon movie, and I couldn't even beat the one I was living with. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of an interesting irony. Uh, anyway, yeah. promise you'll come back because this has been f- fantastic. And like I said, we Thank left you, with sir. probably more questions than we had. Uh, time for, or at least answers for at this point, and uh, we can pick it up where we left off. I would love to, sir. It would be an honor, and uh, it was just as much an honor to be here tonight. 
And uh, I thank you guys for putting up with me. And, and it's not as dark as, as maybe, you know, it appeared to be. There's, there's more light at the end of this than, than we can believe. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.